Hello, my name is Isabel Trick and I'm an Associate Director in the Global Macro Team at Global Council. Welcome to our podcast series, The Global Month Ahead. Towards the beginning of each month, I get together with colleagues from across GC to delve deeper into three of the most interesting events and developments that are taking place in the month ahead. You can expect a focus on issues that have a broader geopolitical or economic importance, and we will always make sure that you know more than your friends and your colleagues when these topics will inevitably hit the news. For today's edition, I have three very interesting topics. We've got the European Council, which will mark the beginning of the Spanish presidency of the Council of the EU. We've got the Shangri-La Security Dialogue. And we've got the new Global Financing Pact, a summit organized in France to look at climate change and other global crises. To kick us off, at the end of the month, we will see the end of the Swedish presidency of the Council of the EU. And I've asked my colleague Anna Martinez, a director in our Brussels office, to help us better understand what is going to be on the Spanish agenda as Spain will take over the presidency from Sweden. Hi, Anna. Hi, Isabel. Thanks a lot for having me. Great to have you, Anna. So what is interesting about this topic is that we've actually had some interesting news over the weekend that have slightly changed our story here because the Spanish Prime Minister, um, Pedro Sanchez, actually called early elections, which are now going to take place in July following regional and municipal elections in Spain. So before we go into Spain's European agenda, I think it would be good to take a step back and look at these developments over the weekend. What happened? What were the main takeaways from these local elections? And why did Sanchez call a snap election? Thank you, Isabel. Indeed. Um, I know some of your audience might be thinking, hmm, why should I care about regional elections in Spain? But in this case, uh, it is very much linked the fact that um, let's say the results of the local election and uh, the prime minister's decision to call um, early elections. Um, so basically the main takeaway is that there was um, a collapse in support for the left across mm, most of the regions, let's say, um, that went to the polls on Sunday. And this has led to the Socialist Party, uh, the PSOE, to lose power at both local and regional levels. Um, and this has closed basically the PSOE's ability and chances of forming minority governments in several regions. Um, so the main issue for the Socialist Party was not actually the, the decrease in votes, because it's interesting that they lost a modest, let's say, 400,000 votes or so. Uh, but the fact that the left just didn't go out to vote or supporters of the left, um, and that its coalition partner at national level, Podemos, um, really did poorly. Uh, so that resulted to the opposition, the center-right PP, uh, becoming one of the biggest um, winners of the local election and taking over five of the nine regions which were previously held by the Socialist Party. And this Santef, um, after uh, taking a few hours to digest um, the news, decided to advance the regional uh, elections that were scheduled for December to July. Um, he said that he saw this as a direct indicator of how voters feel about the current government. Um, and so, I mean, it was honestly quite unexpected 
um, also partly because of, you know, what you mentioned at the start, which is the presidency of the Council of the EU, but we can get to that later. So it certainly sounds that Sanchez read the mood of the room and thought if we're seeing such a collapse in support for the left and such a boost to the opposition, his government might not get the outcome that they want in December. But is that going to be different if they now have a vote in July? How likely is it that we're going to see a change in government in Spain in this early vote in July? So honestly, I think it is uh, quite likely indeed. Um, Sanchez uh, is taking a huge risk. Uh, from my perspective, because he is counting on the socialists, uh, let, let's say socialist supporters and supporters of the left parties to mobilize as they see how regional governments are being put in place, i.e. how the center-right is reaching agreements with the right-wing box, which is seen um you know, by a lot of people and a lot of especially socialist and left-wing supporters are as a bit of an extreme extremist uh, party, although we don't like that label. But, you know, socialist and left-wing parties would certainly um, characterize them as such. And he is hopeful that by seeing how that uh, pans out and how that develops at regional level, this will increase the likelihood of uh, people, um, of his voters, actually going to the polls. But one of the biggest um, unknowns, and I think one of the biggest problems of the left, is that they need to decide whether they want to merge forces. And here, when I talk about the left, I don't mean uh, PSOE, which are the socialists, but more their coalition partner, Podemos. Because um, there is the emergence of a new left-wing party called Sumar. They didn't run in the local elections, but because Podemos had such a poor result, it kind of puts into question whether they can be a self-standing party, even though, you know, a few years ago they were, you know, considered as the third largest party together with Ciudadanos. Things have changed a lot since then. And I would say that the likelihood um, of the left coming together will have an impact on whether... Um, there is a change in government or not. Um, if they don't reach an agreement, I think uh, right-wing or center-right um, government is more likely. Interesting. It definitely sounds like Sanchez is uh, taking a big gamble. They're really hoping that his left-wing voters are going to be mobilized by seeing some of these more right-wing coalitions being formed um, regionally, but also how much it depends on the success of more left-wing forces, Podemos and Sumar coming together. Let's um, look at the European angle of this, because I would imagine this can significantly impact um, Spain's upcoming EU presidency. Maybe let's start with the priorities of the current government ahead of the presidency of the Council of the EU. What was on their agenda? Sure. So um, although the, the presidency's agenda has not been um, officially presented, in conversations uh, with the people in, in Brussels, we've gathered that they are basically expected to prioritize the electricity market reform, uh, free trade agreements with Chile and Mercosur, and the Green Deal Industrial Plan, in particular, the Critical Raw Materials Act, as well as AI. So this is quite um, 
I, I'm not going to say it's a long list because it's, you know, a handful of topics, but not that easy to um, reach an agreement on in six months if you count there's the summer in the middle. Of course, it's not the only issues that they'll focus on. So the wider agenda, you know, is obviously along the lines of uh, some of the buzzwords and terms that we're hearing here in the Brussels op- um, bubble, like the promotion of open strategic autonomy, which basically means that we need to become more autonomous from the U.S. and China in strategic sectors, but also fiscal reform. Um, so focusing on updating the EU's rules on deficit and debt levels, um, as well as digital skills, uh, migration and as- asylum pact. And um, as you know, Spain is very interested in, in relations with Latin America and they're expected to uh, put that at the core of their of their priorities. You might have said that's not a long list. It certainly sounds like a fair amount of work to do for me. Electricity market reforms, FTAs, fiscal reform, green industrial plan. I would imagine they're going to have their hands full. But what the interesting question is, um, could this completely change if we get a center-right or right-wing coalition government in Spain in July? Would this all go out of the window or would they maybe pursue some of the similar priorities? So I think there is a lot of pressure on the Spanish to deliver because it's one of the, let's say, uh, last uh, presidencies that will be able to move things forward um, in the EU agenda during the full, the full six-month period. Uh, Belgium, which is the country that takes um, the, the, the rotation as of January 2024, will have a short window of approximately, let's say, three to four months before um, the European Parliament elections that are scheduled in June 2024. So this translates into, like I was saying at the start, a lot of pressure on the Spanish to reach agreements on as many files as possible before December. And Therefore, we expect, you know, they need to be honest brokers, but we expect them in particular um, more than maybe other countries to prioritize reaching compromises to making sure that these compromises reflect the Spanish perspective. So as a result of that, I think um, that the priorities of the presidency of the Council of the EU under another government are not going to be significantly different. This is uh, in partly because um, the right-wing government or a potential right-wing government will not have had a lot of time to think about these issues, Um, but also because it is in their advantage to close as many uh, dossiers as possible to be seen as a successful presidency. It will, however, impact on Spain's focus, overall focus on the presidency, particularly in July. So we don't expect uh, that with elections uh, at the towards the end of July, Spain will be very much focused on uh, things that are happening in Brussels. Um, we believe that it will be as of September that that will happen. Uh, but this is, again... Um, bearing in mind that coalition discussions um, to form a government run smoothly, which is another question mark, another factor to add into this calculation, um, because Spain is not like 
some other Nordic countries that are very much, um, let's say, that, that know how to reach coalition agreements smoothly. Um, Spanish leaders don't have that much experience in that sense as well. So I, I guess that's another variable to, to keep in mind. That's very interesting. So even so, they do have all that pressure. They are the last full presidency before elections for the European Parliament. And they might be incentivized to form new compromises because they want to be seen as successful. They might not actually have the political capacity to start focusing on this until September because the domestic general election will obviously take precedent for now. Very interesting. We'll keep our eyes peeled and we might have you back in July to talk about the election again. Well, thanks very much, Anna. Thank you, Isabel. On June the 2nd, security and defense leaders are going to gather in Singapore for the Shangri-La Dialogue. And while it's actually the 20th time that they're meeting for the Shangri-La Conference, I don't think it is actually quite as well known as it should be. To change that, I have Daddy from our Singapore office with me. Hi, Daddy. Uh, hi, Isabel. Uh, thank you for having me in this episode of Global Mind Ahead. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, it's great to have you here. So Daddy Donato is an associate in our Singapore office who has been following this summit very closely for us. Daddy, could you introduce the Shangri-La Dialogue to us? Tell us what it is and why is it important? The Shangri-La Dialogue is one of Asia's premier defense summit, which has been held since 2002 in Singapore, specifically at the luxurious Shangri-La Hotel. So now we get the idea of where the name Shangri-La Dialogue originates from. Uh, anyway, uh, this forum brings together defense ministers, uh, officials, as well as experts from various countries, uh, particularly those in the Asia-Pacific region. Representatives from European countries and the U.S. will also participate. So on why the dialogue is important, it is uh, basically a strategic forum that provides a platform for policymakers and experts to discuss and exchange views on pressing regional security issues. According to the draft agenda, defense officials will find ways to resolve prolonged regional challenges such as the nuclear development in the Korean Peninsula, as well as the maritime conflicts in both the East and South China Sea. Most importantly, uh, I expect the forum to have a central focus on mitigating the security risks arising from the growing tension between China and the US. So that's very interesting, even though it's primarily an, an Asian forum, you're telling me the relationship between China and the US has really been a core piece of the agenda in the past. And do you expect this to be the same this year? And what do you think is going to be discussed around that topic? I mean, for much of the past two decades, the relationship between China and the US has always been at the forefront of discussion in this forum. I think this is where we see consistency in terms of what this forum wants to achieve, uh, even though I think it remains uh, challenging. So in this year's uh, summit, uh, we'll see a, quite a significant difference because the Sino-US ties have increasingly worsened since their defense ministers met in the last year's uh, Shangri-La dialogue in June. Two months later, we are well aware of the intensity of the situation in the Taiwan Strait last August, when the former U.S. House of Representatives Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taipei 
which was followed by the resulting military response by the People's Liberation Army. The atmosphere became worse in October when U.S. President Joe Biden imposed tough controls on the export of American chip technology to China, significantly impacting Chinese semiconductor industry and Chinese relationship with Taiwan. And since then, the competition between Beijing and Washington has intensified. You know, both countries are engaging in arm races. U.S. allies such as Australia and Japan are also increasing military spending. And I think all these military activities create tensions on their own and increase the likelihood of accidental encounters. So as I said earlier, we can expect the intense rivalry between China and the U.S. to overshadow the meeting this week. We can also expect Southeast Asian defense ministers to continue to strike balance between China and the U.S. I definitely agree with you there, Daddy. Um, I don't think anyone could argue that the last 12 months have seen a marked improvement in relations between China and the U.S. Export restrictions on chips, like you mentioned, and Taiwan have really been big tension points. Given that backdrop, do you think the Shangri-La dialogue can produce any meaningful progress, any meaningful cooling in the U.S.-China tensions? I think uh, what the Shangri-La dialogue wants to provide is principally to give a space for defense leaders from the respective countries to establish a transparent communication, of course, uh, with the final objective of tempering down the tension. But I think it is unlikely that any significant breakthrough in resolving U.S.-China competition will come from the forum. As we all know, early this week, uh, Beijing rejected Washington's request for a face-to-face -face meeting between Chinese Defense Minister Li Xiangfu and his U.S. counterpart Lloyd Austin. The reason is primarily that the U.S. placed sanctions on Li Xiangfu in 2018 because of his alleged involvement in importing Russian weapons and defense equipment to China. And Chinese official stance is that there will be no bilateral meeting if the sanctions are still in place. But, you know, if the two defense ministers decide to meet after all, it would be shocking news and a huge uh, turning point. I see. Yeah, of course, if we can't have a bilateral meeting, it's very difficult to make progress there. I do want to briefly swivel away from the US because, as you said, this is primarily an Asian forum as well. And we've just had on the 31st where um, South Koreans wake up to a missile alert, which did turn out to be false. But I think that is an interesting uh, development there. Could you maybe delve a little bit into some of the other pressing regional issues that might be on the agenda and what are the most important among them? Certainly, uh, as, as what you said, uh, we'll expect defense leaders to discuss the nuclear development in the Korean Peninsula, um, given North Korea's unprecedented ballistic uh, missile test since uh, last year. And from what I learned, uh, Japan, South Korea and the U.S. are anticipated to announce on the sidelines of the dialogue a plan to integrate their radar system. So it sort of like allows for real-time intelligence sharing on North Korea's ballistic missiles. Uh, on top of that, I also expect a discussion, of course, on the maritime disputes in both the East and South China Sea, as you know, these issues continue to be thorns in the flesh for the conflicting countries. 
But as I said on the maritime dispute time and again, I'm pessimistic that the dialogue will produce any significant solution to the problem. Interesting. So a slightly mixed bag, you think there might be some um, interesting positive developments on the integrated radar systems that might help partners share information about North Korea. But you're not particularly optimistic that this is going to be the moment where we dissolve some of these very long running, very complex maritime disputes. I'm going to be watching. We're all going to be watching if a surprise bilateral between the US and China happens. That would be big news. But let's see what comes out of it. Thanks very much, Daddy. From the 22nd of June, France is going to host an international conference for the so-called New Global Financing Pact. And it has the stated aim of building a contract between the countries of the global north and the south to address climate change, but also other global crises. Lorna Ritchie is the director of our climate and sustainability team. Lorna, before we jump into talking about the summit, I was hoping you could help set the scene for us and help me understand how the summit itself fits into the broader climate agenda for the year. What do we have on the agenda for the rest of 2023? This year is really a crucial year for climate. So for the first time, we've got the global stock take at COP28 in December. And this is looking at how much progress has been made towards the goals of the Paris Agreement. So this is the first stock take that has been taken since the Paris Agreement was agreed in 2015. This covers adaptation, mitigation, finance, and across the board, governments are falling short. The IPCC has said that emissions need to peak by 2025 at the latest. So pressure is really on for countries to show progress this year. The sums needed to achieve this are enormous. The Sharm el-Sheikh implementation plan said that global transformation to a low carbon economy is expected to need investment of at least four to six trillion dollars per year. When you compare that to the commitment that developed countries made back in Paris to mobilise 100 billion a year by 2020, which they did not manage until this year at the earliest, is when they're expected to start hitting that target. Um, so these, it's worth noting as well that these climate discussions do not happen in a void. And so geopolitical tensions are also likely to hamper progress this year. We saw a strong emphasis on the need for China to be more ambitious on climate in the G7 discussions last week. Um, this is also likely to exacerbate tensions between developed and developing countries at COP. Then you've got the ongoing war in Ukraine, which could also dampen ambition on phasing out fossil fuels. And we've already seen a much stronger focus on coal rather than broader fossil fuels compared to what we'd previously anticipated in the run-up to COP. A big risk to success at COP um, that the UAE will need to manage is a relationship with the fossil fuel industry. So recently, a number of MEPs and US senators signed an open letter calling for Sultan Ahmed Al-Jabir to be removed as COP president. It's really important for a COP president that they've got the respect of all parties in order to build agreement. And if you don't have that, it can be very, very challenging to build this um, coherent agreement at COP28. So all of this means that there's going to be significant focus on the role of the private sector and also innovative sources of finance and governments and multilateral development banks' role in supporting this. That sounds like a really busy month up until we hit COP, um, where we're going to have that first global stock take. You mentioned the enormous sums that are needed, four to six trillion a year, far, far removed from the 100 billion that countries have committed to, but not yet achieved, and all of that against a complicated 
geopolitical backdrop and a COP president under pressure. So quite a complex picture kind of as we're moving towards COP, which might be a good opportunity to actually bring it back to the summit. It might be a bit of almost like a dry run in, in advance of COP. And maybe tell me a bit more about the summit. Why is the summit important? Yeah, this summit is really going to be a litmus test for climate discussions at COP this year and whether they will be successful. The aim of the summit is to bring together world leaders to discuss how to leverage more finance from both multilateral development banks, but also new and innovative sources of finance. COP27 last year we saw was dominated by calls for a reform of multilateral development banks or MDBs with world leaders arguing that they're not fit for dealing with the climate crisis. They were called on to do more in particular to support private sector finance to be leveraged and built on the Bridgetown Initiative, which was launched by the Barbados Prime Minister, Mir Motley. Since then, however, there's been very limited progress. Just last week, the G7 called for work to be expedited um, and is committed to supporting the G20 roadmap to implement what came out of the MDB Capital Adequacy Framework Review. So this review concluded that basically MDBs need to take more risk. They need to create more lending headroom through more accurately assessing the financial risks to increase the amount of finance that's going to particularly vulnerable, but also risky countries. And the G7 has promised that Macron's summit would make progress on this reform of MDBs and help to leverage more finance. So really a moment in time where multilateral development banks will have to prove that they have what it takes to, to deal with the climate crisis. Interesting point, of course, with David Malpass stepping down from the, from the World Bank as well. And we have talked about leveraging private finance for a long time and crowding in that private finance, but it seems to have not worked up up till now. So very, very curious to see whether uh, this can change at the summit. And these summits, I would say, have often a bit of a reputation of being a lot of talk, but not a lot of action. Do you expect that summit is going to be different? Are we going to have tangible outcomes from the summit? This will be a real test of whether progress can be made in the current political climate. Macron is hoping that the summit result will result in a pact between developed and developing countries to galvanise commitments on climate finance and progress the reform of the NDBs. The aim of this is to smooth the path ahead of COP. It's much easier to have a successful COP if you do the prep work well in advance. So he's asked leaders to come forward with innovative ways of leveraging new finance. But this isn't um, just climate finance, it's also broader development finance. Many developing countries face significant debt post-COVID and some are calling for debt swaps, which are basically when you convert debt into grants for climate action. However, success at the summit is going to depend to a large extent on how successfully Macron manages to engage China, who owns nearly 40% of developing countries' debt. It will also depend on how successfully Macron manages geopolitical tensions to unite developed and developing countries, which we've definitely seen coming through more strongly, particularly in the G7 communique recently. And it will also be a test of how well the UAE manages its role uh, of presidential mediator. Macron is going to be seeking to appease people domestically at the same time. His popularity has dropped dramatically in the wake of the pension reform with over 70% of the population currently disapproving of him. He also, in this context, called for a regulatory pause on environmental laws earlier this year, saying that the EU had done enough. 
So at this stage in climate discussions and with the cost of living crisis ongoing, he and other developed countries are really unlikely to agree any new direct finance for climate change. But this will be a really good test at this summit of whether we're likely to see significant outcomes later in the year at COP28. I think you've done a really good job there of managing expectations. It doesn't sound like it's an easy backdrop. I think the point of the cost of living crisis is very well taken, but it does sound like important prep work for COP is going to take place at the summit. And I also think the point about this going beyond climate, including touching on questions of that, is absolutely crucial. We have seen how complicated it has been for developing countries to renegotiate that debt, especially if China is a major creditor. Zambia has been working on this for two and a half years now without much progress. And it's going to be an interesting test case for the UAE as a mediator. Well, thanks very much, Lorna. We're going to keep our eyes peeled for that summit. Thanks as well. On this note, we are at the end of our episode of the Global Month Ahead podcast. We're definitely looking at a very interesting month of June. We are looking at a Spanish presidency of the Council of the EU that might actually have to take a backseat to general elections. We then have important security discussions in Asia, where there might be some, pro uh, some progress on countering North Korea through integrated radar systems, but less progress on US-China tensions. And then we have a new summit in France that is likely to show us just how difficult it is going to be to find agreement between developed and developing countries when it comes to issues of development finance and climate finance. As always, if you, your business, or your investment are exposed to any of what we've discussed today, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find the contact details of our presenters and our sectoral teams on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in our podcast notes. So thank you to Daddy, Lorna and Anna, and thanks to you for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you.